So I was slowly driving down the guide the other day, slowly because it was 5.30 p.m. on a weeknight, and you know how that gets. And I was behind a very nice Mercedes, like not just a typically nice Mercedes, but the kind that there might be one or two in all of the whole county. It was black and beautiful and just cruising in front of me. And on the back of this car was a bumper sticker, of course, that read hashtag blessed. Two things immediately troubled me about what I had seen. The first, of course, is who puts a bumper sticker on a car like that? That is a crime. But the second troubling thing is theological in nature. The implication of the bumper sticker being that the person in the car is hashtag blessed and the car being the proof of that blessing. Now, assuming the best about the person in the car, a more accurate bumper sticker may be something like hashtag fortunate or hashtag wealthy or hashtag in great debt, depending on the case. Uh, but when we, talk to, when we talk about the word blessed, at least from a biblical perspective, which is the lens that I'm trying to help us live our lives out of, we're not talking about material possessions, good health, a stable economy, or inner peace. Biblically speaking, a person is blessed when God is at work in them and at the same time through them. When God is at in work in you and through you, so says the scriptures, you are blessed. And that means that anyone in most any condition from any nation can be blessed. And this evening, we're going to read about some blessed people, and my hope is that we would come to see that if we're not already considering ourselves blessed, we sure can be. Would you stand as we read the, the scripture tonight, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have given these things to the, uh, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing well in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes, which see things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Lord, as we open this text up tonight, we pray that you would help us to be in the company of the disciples, to see the things that they saw, to hear the things that they hear, even with spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, Lord. Help us to hear what you're saying to us through this text. And then help us to have courage to obey the things that you're saying to us, to accept them. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, if you missed that sermon, we focused on the first 16 verses of Luke chapter 10. 
We explored the story of how Jesus sent these 72 out on a mission. Their mission was to go into the towns and cities that Jesus would later visit behind them, and they were to go in there and declare that the kingdom of God is at hand, that wherever Jesus is, there his kingdom was breaking in. Jesus gave them power to do really cool things like heal injuries and diseases and to cast out demons from those who were oppressed. That would be pretty awesome to be part of that team. Uh, but he also instructed these 72 witnesses to go out on their mission without money, without a travel bag, or even without shoes. By the world standards, they could have put bumper stickers on their bums, on their tunics, saying, hashtag not blessed. But as soon as we dig into the text, we see that the world would be wrong. These 72 missionaries return full of joy and, and possibly even mild surprise as they declare, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, God has worked in and through us. We rejoice because we're blessed. On the surface, these 72 were simply being obedient to Jesus. They went on their mission. They declared the kingdom of God. They healed the sick, and they cast out demons. That in itself would be amazing. It would be a blessing. But as is often the case, there's more to this passage than meets the eye. And in the next few verses, Jesus will give us some insight into the bigger picture. He says, I, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Did you catch that sentence? 72 come back full of joy. And Jesus is listening to them, but then he just says something like, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. As you might imagine, there's like whole books written on that one verse, that one part of the verse. There are journal articles galore on what this means. And my job at this moment in a sermon setting is to say just enough to do it justice and to teach you a strategy for how to make sense of a passage like this and then to suggest why it matters to us. So hold on, here we go. Uh, just a quick word on the Satan. Who or what is that? The name Satan is actually a term meaning accuser. It comes from a Hebrew Ar Aramaic word, and sometimes you'll hear me say the Satan because it's in reference to the accuser. The Satan is synonymous, means the same thing as the devil, which is the Greek word diablos. The Satan is a being who was once a glorious angel, part of the heavenly host or the heavenly council, like God's inner uh, small council. Uh, it, it seems that at some point his pride and arrogance drove him to want to not only serve God, but to, to take God's place. Like he could do a better job in his mind than God was doing. Uh, so he's cast out of God's court and with him a certain number of angels loyal to, to the Satan's cause and we call those angels demons. So the Satan is a personal being who wields significant power, but who is subject to the power of God. For whatever reason, he's allowed to survive, and ultimately, he's made to serve God's purposes. He's made to serve God's purposes, that is, until the final judgment, when his time is run, and he will be destroyed. But that is both a mystery and a completely different topic, and you'll have to save that for another time. In this passage we're exploring, Jesus says he saw the Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Sounds simple enough, but on deeper inspection, we might ask, did Jesus see the Satan literally falling from heaven as though heaven were a place up in the sky and the earth is here and he saw him falling like a shooting star? Or did Jesus see a vision of the Satan falling from heaven as if in another realm or dimension? And if so, was this event in the past or the present or the future? Or did Jesus say he saw Satan falling from heaven as a prophetic statement, like a metaphor or an image? 
what do you do with this? Do you need a master's degree or a PhD in theology or New Testament to understand? Those degrees might be helpful. And we certainly have that English Bible in your pew right there is the work of a lot of really smart people who have translated it for us. But I want to suggest that for the most part, you with a good translation in your hand, um, there's some basic skills we can employ. And one of those skills that I'm always talking about is context. Uh, and a question I like to ask is, have I, Greg, help me out. Yes, have I seen this before? Have I seen something like this before? And if so, where have we seen this before? So in this case, there are at least two places, but the two big places in Scripture where we can find similar ideas. And one is back in time and one is forward in time. The back in time uh, is, is Isaiah chapter 14. And the setting in Isaiah chapter 14 is Babylon. And Israel has been defeated by Babylon, and they've been turned into slaves. They've been deported from the promised land into the Babylonian empire. It's a time of oppression by an evil king who rules over them. But then, through the prophet, God speaks a word of encouragement and promise that one day the tables would be turned, that the oppressed would be lifted up and the oppressor would be brought low. And of particular importance is Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, which says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now, the king of Babylon was prideful and arrogant, thinking of himself as mightier than God. Since he had defeated Yahweh's people, he thought, My God and my people are mightier than Yahweh. What he didn't realize in his hubris is that God was using him to punish the people of Israel. But now that that punishment had run its course, the Babylonian king, who styled himself as the bright morning star, would be brought down to earth and brought down hard. So from Isaiah, we have seen a reference from the mighty falling, but also an implication that the people of God would be entering into a new age or a new life of freedom out from under the oppressor. Okay, hold that idea it over here for a minute. Um, then we're going to go to the second passage. It's the one that Patrick read earlier, uh, Revelation chapter 12. Now, now, this passage has weird stuff in it. It's like a woman, a dragon with 10 horns, a child. And while it's kind of weird, it's kind of also straightforward. So just listen to this. The woman represents two things, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the church. The woman is referred to as a sign says that in the text she is a sign in other words the church is not a woman living in the heavenly realm right because we're like right here okay so it is it's a sign and the dragon represents the satan the dragon is referred to as a sign in other words satan is not a literal dragon with 10 horns and red scales the woman and the dragon let me just force this home are referred to in the text as signs in revelation 12 but the child is not he's an actual child and this child is referring to jesus the christ with the birth of jesus the christ the dragon or the satan is defeated and he's mad and he goes to war against angel uh, michael and his his angel armies and satan and his armies are defeated and the accuser is cast down out of the heavenly host and he takes all his anger out on the creation and he takes all of his anger out on the image bearers of God. That's us. 
But there are three ways in Revelation 12 that it says the followers of Jesus can defeat the Satan. And the first thing that we, is that we rely upon the blood of the Lamb. Daryl Johnson wrote, you see, the dragon is right. We have sinned, and he accuses us of that. We are sinners, but he's also wrong. That's not the end of the whole story. There is a Savior who deals with sin. You're right, I sinned again, but Jesus has died for me. Okay, so that's the first weapon of the people of God, is to tell the truth about the blood of the Lamb. The accuser wants to say that you are guilty and shameful and God doesn't love you, and Jesus has a different narrative. The second weapon against the dragon is the truth, and primarily the truth about Jesus and the way of Jesus. It's telling the truth about how Jesus views people and how Jesus views the world. It's the truth about what it means to follow Jesus. It's Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And what made this man, Martin Luther King, so powerful? It wasn't his privilege because he's an African-American man in segregated America. It could be his way with words, and those certainly helped, no doubt. But the thing that made Martin Luther King Jr. so effective is that he spoke the truth about how Jesus sees people and the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing into the world, about the kind of relationships that the kingdom of God demands. And him speaking the truth about Jesus in concert with others speaking the truth about Jesus and living out the ways of Jesus began to break the power of oppression that was at work in the evil one. The dragon, the devil, the Satan began to crack in that area. How we need to keep preaching the truth about Jesus, amen, because the work that Martin Luther King Jr. started isn't done. And neither is a lot of other good work that we need to speak the truth into. You see, God has set it up so that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of creation are interlocking. They're connected in some way. Uh, think of a, a quilt or something where you see a pattern on one side and a pattern on the other. It's the same piece of material. The, the stitches go through, and in some way we are connected to the kingdom of heaven. He set things up so that our words and our actions actually have meaningful outcomes, not only here, but in the heavenly dimension. Somehow our prayers affect outcomes, our deeds make a difference, and our commitment to the truth of Jesus and his kingdom can help bring down the evil one. The third thing we can do, as we learn from Revelation 12, is we can overcome the dragon by declaring the good news of Jesus. That is, the gospel of his birth, his death for us, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne, and his promised return. In particular, the good news that death no longer has the last word. And once the fear of death is removed, there is no hold that the Satan really has over us. And when we take Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12 into consideration, and then we read about a mission where a new people of God have gone out declaring the truth, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, it's no wonder that Jesus makes reference to the Satan falling from heaven. It's a statement declaring the fact that a new age has begun, and although Satan still causes lots of trouble, he cannot in the end overcome the people of God. You can say amen, because that's good. That's part of what Jesus' strange reference to snakes and scorpions in verse 19 is talking about. And I realize we've only covered a couple of verses, don't we? We're going to go hyperspeed pretty soon. But just, this is weird stuff, right? Behold, or look, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. What is he talking about? 
is Jesus literally saying, guess what, guys? It's a special gift for going out on your mission. I'm going to make it so that every time you step on a scorpion or snake, they won't hurt you. That's like a cool consolation prize, but I can think of so many other more effective things I'd rather have as the 72, like maybe favor in telling the missionary story. I'd take a cure of the common cold, because I bet you even back then in that country, people got a cold more often than they got snakes and scorpion bites, right? It's a weird thing to say. It makes me want to say, have we heard this before? Where have we seen something like this before? Right. Deuteronomy 8, 15. Yahweh has delivered the Israelites from Egypt. He's led them out into the wilderness. He has protected them from foreign armies. He's provided food from heaven and water out of solid rock to sustain them. Not even their shoes or their clothes wear out after 40 years of traveling around the desert. And in Deuteronomy 8, 15, it reminds the people, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. It's part of a larger passage in which God is reminding them of his protection over them. But this protection came with a caveat. If they turned to idolatry, if they mistreated each other with, with systems of injustice, God would remove his protection from the people of Israel. And foreign invaders like Babylon and Assyria and Persia, Greece, Rome, they would come and conquer Israel. Now notice what Jesus says. Behold, which is a fancy way of saying look. I give you authority over serpents and scorpions. Look, open your eyes. Do you see what's going on in your very age, in your very time? A new age has dawned, and you are a part of it. The kingdom is breaking in. A new people of God is being formed around the person of Jesus, and the Satan himself can't stop it. And that's why, even though Jesus acknowledges their success and mission, he does not uh, he does not say, rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, rejoice that you are one of God's people. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice that you are part of this new kingdom where you have eternal life through faith in Jesus. You want to know what makes Jesus happy? He's happy when people are saved. He's happy when the lost are found and when the oppressed are set free. He's happy when oppressive regimes fall and when sinners repent and find forgiveness and new life in Jesus. And there's more to it than that. He is happy with the way that the Father has set up this saving economy. Listen to what he says. Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, Praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have reserved them for infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone ex um, but who the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus rejoices that the gospel of faith in him is readily available to those who are willing to, to be humble enough to see it, most of the opposition that Jesus ran into was not from children and peasants. It was from the elite. It was from the rulers, from the highly educated, and particularly the highly educated religious people and the self-sufficient. But the Father's way is to reveal himself only through the Son. Let me say that again. The Father chooses to reveal himself exclusively through the Son, 
Jesus. So if you're too good for Jesus, too sophisticated for Jesus, too busy for Jesus, too prideful for Jesus, you cannot come to the Father. And at the same time, the simple ones for whom the world has written off as insignificant, for those who come to Jesus in humility, for those who Jesus wishes to reveal himself, those are the ones who come to know the Father firsthand. That is such good news. The intelligent and wise not seeing Jesus is not like some kind of rule. It's not an indictment on education. In fact, the call to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a clear statement against anti-intellectualism. It's not intelligence or education that Jesus is against. He's against relying on those things or anything more than Jesus. What might this be talking about in our day and age? It might be the man accused of misconduct by multiple victims who would rather cling to his position and pride than confess and come clean. It is the president who, shrouded in privilege and a bubble of yes people, calls out countries as stinkholes, only he didn't say stinkholes. It's that kind of pride that keeps one from embracing their desperate need for a savior. It's the wise and savvy of the world who don't really get Jesus. He's turning the whole thing on its head. Blessed are those from places the world calls stinkholes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who repent at great personal loss in the public eye, for your faith in Jesus will make you well. Blessed are those who invest in the kingdom of God over their safety or popularity or comfort, for it pleases Jesus that they would have their names written in the book of heaven. Brothers and sisters, some of you may have everything you think you need on the outside. Life might be going pretty well right now. You have health, comfort, friends, a retirement plan. You might see Jesus as an accessory to your life. But hear the gospel afresh. You and I, we are lost without Jesus. We are dead in our trespasses without receiving grace and forgiveness. And if you've received these things, then you and I, we need to be about the work of the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, some of you are here tonight thinking you don't mean much to the world. You're struggling emotionally, maybe financially. You find it hard to think that Jesus would want you in his team of 72, or that your name could be on the book of heaven. You may feel like you don't have the credentials or skills to be important in the sight of God. But remember the 72 that Jesus sent on the mission. We don't know their names. We don't know their skills. We don't know their gender. We don't know their age. We don't know a thing about their education. We just know that they trusted God and he worked in and through them. Hashtag blessed. We know that they had faith and their names are in the book of life. We know it makes Jesus happy to rescue those who are desperate for him. Would you join me? In fact, I just want to uh, give us a moment of silence, maybe to confess where we are at, because this will be our prayer of confession time. To confess where maybe we've been relying on the things of the world and not Christ and we can come afresh to him. Or maybe it's that feeling of over being overwhelmed. Maybe it's that we want to confess, Lord, we don't believe that you, you can forgive us for this thing or that you love us in spite of that thing. And we, we just wanted to cry out for help. Um, let's take a moment and just express to him 
in silence what it is. 